Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 131. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here with you. Brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Some music conversations this time around on the podcast. In the second half, we'll take you back to the 1960s. Talk with Don Daneman, who was the lead singer, guitarist for The Circle. Had a couple of big hits, Red Rubber Ball, Turn Down Day. But an interesting connection to the Beatles as well, including uh, well, getting their name from John Lennon. Don will talk about that and much more later on. But we get the show underway this week by welcoming back to the podcast legendary singer-songwriter Don McLean, creator of a number of iconic hits in the 1970s and 80s, from, of course, American Pie to Vincent, Castles in the Air, and many more. He's got a brand-new album out called Still Playing Favorites, and we had a chance to catch up with Don and talk about that and more. Really enjoy the album, uh, a worthy follow-up to your 1973 album. What's the criteria for you when picking uh, songs that someone else wrote is does it have to be a song that you can relate to that you understand well it's got to be a song that i can sing in um in a superior way i mean i don't want to be able to i don't want to be doing something where i do a bad version of something um you know you can like a song like i like the song the lush life that uh, nat king cole used mm. to sing it was written by a guy named billy strayhorn I couldn't sing that song. It's 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 too avant-garde as, as a piece of pop jazz music for me to do. But I can sing a song like Last Night When We Were Young, uh, which is uh, a, probably a song of the same age, and it's on the Botanical Gardens album. It's the only song I didn't write, but, you know, there are certain songs that I know how to sing and that I can um, transmit. And there are others that I like, but that I would never attempt because I, uh, it's like a piece of clothing, you know, it wouldn't suit me. Um, so that's pretty much the criterion. You know, it has to be something that I can get behind and really uh, deliver. Well, you do that and more, and such a wide variety of songs that I'm sure are reflected your taste in music, the various influences along the way. But I have to say, of, of all the songs on this album, the one that I like the most is, I think, the one that has the um, the most different feel from the original version, or the version we all know. It's your great take on Greenback Dollar. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, you know, I've always liked the the old Kingston Trio when I was a kid. Uh, I still like them, especially the early records with Dave Gard. And but that was uh, done with the second group with the uh, John Stewart. They kept making hit records. And uh, I never heard anybody do that song. And what I love about it is it really sums up uh, my philosophy, which is all I really understand is a good song and a good guitar. I mean, that's taken me everywhere. So it, I can get behind that and change a couple of chords um, and then just let the, the band rip because I've got, some great guitar players that always are on the road with me. And it's fun to have these songs to plug in here and there 
after I do, say, a group of songs of mine, and, you know, then, then something different. So that was how the album actually got started, was a lot of those songs I recorded in the studio and had them left over, and um, suddenly I had an album. What drew you to the uh, Johnny Cash song that leads off the album, So Doggone Lonesome? I just, uh, well, I understand that song. You know, I've, I've waited, you know, for people, girlfriends, whatever, you know, and and waited and waited, you know, and focused on it. Uh, 60 minutes more to wait for you. You know, it's, uh, I guess I'll keep on loving you forever. Uh, you know, this kind of thing. Johnny Cash was a very lonely guy in some ways and so was Roy Orbison and they were very good friends and they were both decked out in black uh, most of the time and they were supremely talented people that transmitted that uh, loneliness into what they did uh, that's what you really hear you know it's not the song it's them and um there's a little of me in that kind of thing as well. I'm, I have a lot of uh, loss in some of my songs, pain, and um, that's why I knew both of them, and they were friends of mine. And um, so this song is a song he wrote for Ernest Tubb, actually, and Ernest Tubb is a terrific artist. I love a lot of the things that he does. But... Um, you know, I do my best to hide this low-down feeling, <laughs> try to tell myself there's nothing wrong, but they always asking me about you, darling, and hurts me so to tell them that you're gone. That's just tremendous. Yeah, you've got also got a wonderful version of uh, Mel Tillis' song I wrote with Webb Pierce, became a big hit uh, for Webb, I Ain't Never. Yeah, that one is a blast. And we, we, we usually it just rolls along the two verses, but I arranged it so there's a kind of a breakdown in it uh, where the guitars take over and it changes key for a bit and i really think it helped this song work out for me um it's just kind of breaks down that low thing and then and then it comes back out of it um but you know that again this is a song about women and um that kind of that kind of girl you can never quite control you can't quite get her to behave and you know you go to the door and she's not home anymore and all this stuff it's like uh <laughs> the rodney dangerfield joke he said this girl came up to me said come to my house there's nobody there's nobody there i went to her house there was nobody there <laughs> uh, you do a couple of songs that elvis recorded including one that i i've always thought is the best of that that period between uh, elvis going off to the army and the 68 special a little sister yeah, those were Doc Thomas songs that he did, um, and, um, and, and it was a little different. He had like a electric bass and didn't have the upright Bob Moore on upright. Bob Moore was a great upright player, the greatest of all time. He's on Crying, my version of Crying. He's on Since I Don't Have You, My Castle's in the Air. What a great player. Uh, but they had a different guy playing electric bass and still had the Jordanaires. And that was, you know, his latest flame and the fool such as I mm. and all those those tunes. Uh, a little bit more pop, I guess, and, and not quite as bluesy. 
as the early stuff, which is still, you know, you, you can't beat all shook up. I mean, you know, and a lot of those songs did not have drums. All Shook Up does not have drums. Uh, um, Don't Be Cruel does not have drums. It's just him beating the back of his guitar. Right. It's a very effective way of emphasizing the rhythm without a full full drum. But um, we, uh, Jerry, my drummer, said, why don't we make a real intimate kind of close thing like this? And he started to work on that rhythm thing, and that's where that all came from. And I don't know, there's some stuff going on there. I don't know what those guys did, you know. <laughs> and, and then I just got with it uh, as far as the singing goes. We're talking with Don McLean. His new album is called Still Playing Favorites. Love your version of Bessie Smith's Backwater Blues, a great vocal and um, a great musicianship as well on that. Well, uh, I first heard that song from Bessie Smith because I'm a big Bessie Smith fan. I think I got the, there was a wonderful collection of uh, Columbia Records put out five albums of all of her, her songs. Now, Bessie recorded in the 1920s and 30s. She was dead in 33, I think, so it was mostly the 20s. Direct to disc. So there was no in-between uh, generations lost. It went directly from her mouth right onto that disc, okay? So those, al- those songs are actually quite um, faithful to how she really sounded. And um, I first heard Backwater Blues on that one. Then I have a Josh White version that I had, and then I used to live with Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry uh, in the 60s for a couple of years. We worked a nightclub together in Lenox, Massachusetts. I was the opening act, and we did like two weeks together, sometimes four weeks, and we would stay in the same uh, communal area where they had bunks, you know, and I would sit and listen to Brownie play guitar all day and talk to Sonny about his life and and Brownie would play uh, the backwater blues. I was not familiar with uh, "Got the Bull by the Horns," but that that was a Johnny Horton recording and and one that I guess you've yeah. done in concert for some time. Yeah, I changed that song a little bit, um, but that's just a blaster, you know. It's like <laughs> it starts with my guitar blasting away, and then <laughs> and sometimes we do it after American Pie or. We do three or four encores. We'll do one. We'll do one of those songs, and just set the guitar players loose. You know, in the in the, in the audience, basically, um, you know, riffing like crazy and uh, just having a good time. I'm great to see too that you've partnered up with the people at Time Life uh, to release uh, a whole lot of great music from your catalog. Over 170 songs available now on streaming services. Yes, it's the Don McLean YouTube channel, and it's, there's so much more on there. I mean, they, they're coming out with stuff right and left. Um, they're uploading things, and they're asking me to do things, you know, uh, from home here. So I've done a number of videos on how, to, how I play guitar and how I sing with the guitar. And I did a double video on folk banjo styles, because I'm getting old and most of the really great folk banjoists like Seeger and Eric Darling and people like that are not alive anymore. And I learned everything they know how to do. 
And uh, I was a good banjo player, a five-stringer back in the 60s and 70s. And um, I learned all their little tricks and the strums that they do. I I could never quite do it maybe as well, but I did my own thing. And um, so I wanted to get that on on tape so that anybody that comes along, it's not Scruggs style, which is three-fingered style bluegrass banjo. It's a whole different thing, and it's a variety of different strums and... uh, and sounds that you can get out of this wonderful instrument. So uh, I did that. I'm really happy I did it. And I actually, once in a while, I put it on and listen to it. I think, oh, it's not too bad, you know? Okay. Are you going to be on Larry's Country Diner tonight and on Saturday at 11 on RFD TV? What was that experience like? Well, you know, I went out to Nashville. I mean, the big experience was getting on a plane and flying to Nashville mm. with my girlfriend for about a week five days. I said, I didn't know what to expect. Neither of us did. We've been there many times. And we get to the hotel at the Hilton and the room is sealed. There's wow. like a seal. It's like some sort of uh, a sci-fi movie, you know? <laughs> so we open the door of the room and then no maid will come back in the room while you're there. Wow. So there's no service. If you want towels, they'll put it out in front of your room. So it's just your germs, and that's it, you know? <laughs> so this is very weird. So I can't get anything, but the restaurant was open. So I called down. The lady said, I said, there's nobody here, is there? She said, not really. There's about 10% <laughs> occupancy, and they have a skeleton crew on. But the restaurant was open, so we had dinner down there several times. It was very nice. Uh, everybody was, was great, and we went over and did some things. And nobody was in the street. Hardly any traffic. So it was pretty crazy. And then we drove up to where Larry's Diner is, which is, you know, way out of town. It's about an hour away from downtown Nashville. And it was a lot of fun. I, I really have enjoyed all the friends and neighbors that I've met in Nashville throughout the last 40 years or more. I mean, my lawyers are in Nashville. My musicians are in Nashville. Uh, everything. My current management and PR people are in Nashville. It's home to me, you know, and I know their families and know their kids. And uh, so that was great because, you know, sort of a lone wolf like me, I never get to know too many people, but uh, I sure have known a lot there. So it was like that, you know, there was one of the members of the, the name of the group the quartet they just disbanded and their bass player passed away i can't think of their name right now statler brothers i love oh, yeah. those guys uh you know the guitar player in the statler brothers was was there he was the nicest guy and uh, is that don reed yeah i think that's right yeah good guy and uh, i saw the statlers at carnegie hall with johnny cash in 1968 and uh before i met cash and, uh, boy, that was a great show. And outside, they were selling that Folsom Prison album, and I bought one. <laughs> and that was a night I'll never forget. And Johnny made his big comeback that night in New York because four years before that, uh, he was a junkie, and they just about run his ass out of town. Right. You know, the, 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 he got the worst review. He still hurt when I talked to him and got to know him. He said, you know, that review in New York City, they said, why don't you just go back to Arkansas? You know, mm-hmm. you got no talent and this and that. You know, you don't get over these things. It hurts. I understand you're a big Western fan, Don. What's what's your favorite oh, yeah. Western movie of all time? Well, 
Uh, well, I mean, you know, that's a big. I I I love the. Uh, you want to talk about this for a minute? I'll tell you. Um, when Western movies started in the seventies, and I knew a guy in upstate New York who used to write to all the old Western stars, who, by the way, were still on the road in the nineteen seventies with small circuses. Hmm. And one of them was the great Colonel Tim McCoy, oh, wow. who was still on the road with a small circus. Uh, and so it was fascinating, you know. And so I, I would read these letters that he would write. They would all write back. They were very genuine gentlemen. You know, they would answer their fan mail personally. And uh, sometimes McCoy would ask for a lottery ticket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was really funny. So... You know, there's. I enjoy the really early great he-men of the Western genre. They are Buck Jones, mm-hmm. Ken Maynard, Hoot Gibson, Tim McCoy, Tom Mix. Those guys are my favorite. They're the most, they're really the most magical of all of them. The later singing cowboys, uh, I like them. I like Gene Autry quite a bit. In fact, I have a number of Gene Autry's personal possessions because his wife lives out here and they were selling some of them. I have his watch fob and I have his wristwatch and I have a bunch of things that belong to Gene. Um, but, of course, in modern times, I would say that The Searchers is really yeah. the best mm-hmm. and most beautiful Western there ever was. Hard to argue with that. Uh, Don McLean, the new album, still playing favorites, uh, finds you in wonderful voice. It's a terrific collection, and it's so great to have you back on our show to talk with us once again. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, stay safe and be well. And uh, hopefully, we'll hopefully, make sure you play all those tracks on your radio station. You got it, and hopefully we'll get that Broadway show at some point when all of that reopens. Well, I'll be back anytime you want. I have property in Maine quite a bit, and I've been a resident of Maine for like 35 years, so I love the state. Well, we love your music, Don. Great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us Thank today. you. I appreciate that. That's Don McLean talking with us about his new album, Still Playing Favorites, here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll pause for just a moment, a word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and when we return, Don Daneman of The Circle. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. It's much too groovy a summer's day to waste running round in the city. But here on the One of the two big hits from the circle, Turn Down Day. 
One of the two lead singers in the group and guitarist, Don Daneman, caught up with us recently, and we looked back at the, well, his career, the formation of the circle, and much more here on Downtown. Hey, Rich. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Man, those songs of yours sound so good, and I guess that's that's the mark of a great song, that here we are more than five decades later, and they sound so fresh and so good. I enjoy hearing them still and performing them still, and I... Um, I actually didn't appreciate how good they were at the time when we had recorded them and then they were hits and on the air. And I thought they were cute, but not great. And I actually had an epiphany um, probably in the mid 80s when a small record company called Sundays got the license from Columbia, which was our main record company, to release our stuff. And they asked me to listen to it. And I hadn't really paid a lot of attention to Red Rubber Ball or Turn Down Day or the rest of it for a good while because I got into doing commercials and I loved commercials and, you know, I had a nice career doing it. Anyway, I sat down and listened to it, not thinking about it for a long time. And Red Rubber Ball came on and I just almost jumped out of my seat realizing, oh, my God that really sounds like a hit. The, the lead guitar and organ that come in together at the beginning. And then um, bandmate Tommy Dawes, you know, while I start singing it and then Tommy joins me, our harmony was just our own sound. It was a very unique sound. And I thought, wow, it really deserved to be a hit. So yeah, it's great to hear it now and it's great to perform it still. Let's go back to well the very beginning for you. You uh, grew up in Brooklyn and I understand like, well, like a lot of kids at that time, it was uh, tuning into WINS and the legendary Alan Freed that exposed yes. you to rock and roll. Well, I, um, in the fifth grade, sitting on my back porch in Brooklyn, when we still lived in Brooklyn, and I had gotten a transistor radio for my birthday, which would make it, I'm guessing this would be in early, my birthday is May 9th. So I'm thinking this is May 9th, or maybe the day after, 1955. And I'm just on the back porch flipping channels with my new transistor radio. And I came upon some music that I had never heard. And it was basically, it was Alan Freed's show. And the first song that I heard, which I still remember, it made such a dent in me, was a song called Story Untold by a group called The Nutmegs. And it was one of those early doo-wop hits. And it just, I, and I, I just was captivated and I listened all evening. And it basically made me say, I want to do this. Just got me just into wanting to do music. When you got your chance uh, when you were in college at Lafayette, y'all got together there. Though originally you were the Rondells. Yes. When, uh, when I uh, uh, got to Lafayette, and this would have been fall 61, and um, I met uh, at a fixer. <laughs> um, and there was a band at the freshman mixer. And during the band's break, a couple of fellow freshmen grabbed instruments and started playing. And, and a friend of mine who I was, a new friend, you know, we we're new at the college. Hey, Don, you can play. You should go play with them. And we ran up to my room, got my guitar and an amp and ran over to them and 
um, asked, you know, hey, can I join you guys? Oh, yeah, come on, join. And it was one of those magic moments. You know, we did Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly, and I actually knew the lead to the song instrumental, Walk, Don't Run. And um, it was one of those things. And they said, wow, we got to form a band. And initially, I said, yeah, I, it would be great to form a band, but I had a girlfriend back home um, and I thought, on weekends, I don't want to be playing. I want to have my girlfriend up. <laughs> anyway, they said, oh, let's practice. Let's practice. And we practiced through the fall. We were not officially a band, but we practiced. And at Christmas, my girlfriend broke up with me. And as heartbreaking as that was, when I came back after Christmas, I told the guys, I said, hey, you know what? No girlfriend. If you want to play, I'm in. <laughs> and, you know, son of a gun, we started getting work, you know, yeah, we, we started playing. We were, we were a good fraternity party band. And, um, they, I think it was Tommy Dawes, bandmate Tommy Dawes, who sadly has passed on. Um, he said to me one day, Hey Don, our name is the Rondells. I can't say I loved it, but I didn't have anything better. And I thought, sure, we're the Rondells. And there we were all through college. We were the Rondells. And uh, how did you come to the attention of, of Nat Weiss, who then would introduce you to Brian Epstein? Um, in the summer of 19, let me think, 65, summer 1965, we played at a bar, the Alibi Bar in Atlantic City on South Carolina Avenue off the boardwalk. I have no idea if it's still there. Um, and right at the end of the summer, when we were basically going to break up, go our separate ways, uh, I was finished with college. Uh, original piano player Earl Pickens was off, going off to medical school. Uh, bandmate Tommy Dawes, bass player, he had a little bit to go at Lafayette, and drummer Marty Freed had a year to go still. Anyway, Nat Weiss walked in. On, at, right at the end of the summer, I think it was Labor Day, he walked in and he heard us and he came up to us during a break. He said, hey, my name is Nat Weiss. Um, I think you guys are really good. And I'm a good friend of Beatle manager, Brian Epstein. And if uh, you want, you know, give me a call. We're forming a management company here in, in, in this country. And, you know, maybe we can get something going. So we didn't believe him, of <laughs> course. You know, we who, you know, we had a lot of people would come up to us at various times and tout their big connections. And, you know, it was, it, it was like nothing. So, um, anyway, summer ended and I thought, cause I was now back in East Chester, New York, suburb of New York city, working for my dad in the sheet metal factory. And by the way, on the Red Rubber Ball album, if you look, they mentioned Don the Sheet Metal Prince. <laughs> that was our, our producer, John Simon, who wrote the, the, the footnotes. So I am the Sheet Metal Prince. Anyway, working for my dad, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll give this guy a call. So I called Nat, and, uh, you know, he answered the phone, and he remembered me. Oh, Don, yeah. Great, you know, good to hear from you. Why don't you come down to the city? This is, he lived in New York. Uh, come down to the city. He gave me an address. It was on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and I'll introduce you to Brian. So really, I said to myself, 
uh, okay. So I took a buddy of mine and we drove down uh, to the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It was uh, in the middle of the block in one of those smaller, like four-story buildings, walk-up buildings. I went up, there was a party, went up to the first floor of the, well, it was the second floor of the building. And we're standing around. Nat is not there, but we're looking around. We're both kind of shy, my friend and I. Um, finally, Nat walks in. I go up. Well, Nat, here I am. Oh, Don. Yes, follow me. And I follow him. We go back down the stairs, out onto the street, and there is a limo parked on the street. And I, I, I wish you could see me doing this but for your, for your listeners, but I want you to picture a grand gesture of coming to this door, like the hand gesture coming in. That opened the door and gestured me into the limo. And I go in, he sits me down on one side, and there I am sitting across from Brian Epstein. Now, there's no fooling in this. I mean, we were big Beatle fans. We knew exactly what Brian Epstein looked like. I am sitting across from Brian Epstein. And Nat now introduces me. Now, I have to qualify the introduction because it sounds like I'm bragging. So, uh, so just take a step out for one second. I'm a decent guitar player. I'm, I'm pretty good. I am not the greatest, but I'm, I'm okay. Nat introduced me, however, Brian Epstein, I would like you to meet Don Daneman, one of the finest musicians I know. <laughs> Gulp. So anyway, so uh, I shake Brian's hand and, wow, Brian, it's great to meet you. We're big Beatles fans and, you know, we, we, love, we love the Beatles. We're, we're, we play ourselves and it would be great if we can get something going. Now, Brian, I'm going to imitate Brian's. I, I'm going to do a poor imitation of an English accent. But <laughs> Brian, in all of our relationships with him, was a total gentleman. And basically, he looked at me very sweetly, and he said, oh, yes, Don, Nat has spoken very highly of you, and, uh, you know, perhaps we can get something going. So, yes, it's wonderful to meet you, and, you know, let's see what happens. Anyway, as gesturingly, lovingly gesturingly, as Nat got me into the limo, a couple of maybe more phrases back and forth, now beckoned me out of the limo with, the, <laughs> with a similar gesture. So out I went, they closed the door. I'm now standing on the street and I picture it as a video in my head and the camera is actually behind me. So you see me sort of silhouette looking away and the limo slowly drives off down this side street into black and then the video fades out and that was my meeting with brian and that's how the thing got started and john lennon actually is the one who suggested the spelling of the band's name yes uh, well actually the name and and the spelling and and the way we found out about that now this was this is fast forward a little bit later um so now um, we had our, uh, we were signed to a management contract with Brian Epstein, with partner Nat Weiss, and um, we had a Columbia record contract, and it was actually at a recording session at Columbia, still the early days, but, you know, th this was now done. Uh, we were still the Rondells from Lafayette College, and we, we all knew we needed a new name, and we're trying to think of it, you know, and Brian... Uh, he, he, 
attended this session. He was he was in in the states and in New York, and he attended the session, and he called me up. He says, "Oh, Don, I have something for you here. Come, come and and, and take a look." He hand excuse me. He hands me a business card, and I look at the card and. Well, it's a standard business card. It says Brian Epstein on it. I, I don't remember the details of it, but Brian Epstein, oh, no, no, don't turn it over. <laughs> I turn the card over, and I see scribbling on on the back of the card. Sir, Kerr, um, I, I'm sorry, Brian, what am I seeing? I, I can't, don't quite get it. Oh, Don. This is your new name, and it was it was thought of by John, you know. And notice it's the circle with the funny spelling, as only John could think of something like that. So, what do you think about that? <laughs> so, I of course pretended to be really happy and enthusiastic about it, but in my immediate mind, it was like circle what? <laughs> anyway, obviously it worked out. You know, here we are 50 plus years later and we're still the circle and it, it worked out very well. The one little sad thing about that story is so I had this card in my hand with the circle scribbled on it in Brian's handwriting, a Brian card. And I am awful oh, at no. memorabilia. And that card went in the trash. And oh. was you know, I, I would so love to have it on my wall now. Wow. Uh, we're talking with Don Daneman of The Circle. So how did you guys uh, get the opportunity to record Paul Simon's Red Rubber Ball? Um, actually, it was pretty simple. You know, we were now with the Columbia Record contract and a new young producer, John Simon, who was our first producer. And we would be sitting around and trying to say, OK, what are we going to record? We had some songs we had written ourselves and we would hear all demos from all over the place. And bandmate Tommy Dawes actually had gotten friendly with a fellow named Barry Kornfeld. This is in the village, Greenwich Village, New York. We're all we're hanging around the village. And Barry Kornfeld had a publishing company with Paul Simon. And Tommy heard a demo that uh, Paul done. It was on a 45, 45 RPM, just Paul with a guitar. And, and he heard it with Barry and he he liked it. He said, you know, this is maybe something we should think about. So he brought it to the band and we all heard it and we said, yeah, let's let's give it a shot. So that's where that came from. And is it true that you guys passed on recording Feeling Groovy? Yes, <laughs> that, that one. Now, the story there is now this is a fast forward a little bit beyond um, Red Rubber Ball was already a hit, and I believe Turn Down Day was already a hit. But and we're we're going into the studio, and um, Simon and Garfunkel are just finishing up. We're coming in, so this is Columbia Studios. We all use the Columbia Studios, and uh, everybody knows everybody, you know, because Paul had written Red Rubber Ball, and so we we all knew everybody. So and he came up to us, says, you know, there's a song that we're recording this is our new album it won't come out for a while and there is one song on this album that i think might be perfect for you guys and okay well let's hear it you know so engineer pushes the button the song comes on and everybody is kind of bopping around in the studio it sounds really good uh, uh, uh. anyway and the song ends 
And I'm, I refer to this as the biggest brain freeze of the 20th century, <laughs> when we all kind of, we sort of looked at each other. We said, well, you know, yes, it's very good, but um, not now. This is not the time for this now. Maybe we do it in, in six months, something like that. And so we, we didn't do it, and then we forgot about it. And then it was uh, kind of sad when we heard Harper's Bazaar come out with it sometime later. Uh, you were in the Coast Guard. Is it is it uh, correct that uh, you actually got a pass from the Coast Guard so you could go in and tape the series Hullabaloo? Yes. And uh, whenever I, I talk about this, I want to, and I say this very feelingly, I thank the Coast Guard because they really cooperated on a couple of things for me. Now, I did my duty. I mean, I still, I was there. I did what I was in the reserve, but uh, my active duty was... Uh, this was in the middle of boot camp, and I got a call. So this would have been in March uh, of '66. Um, I, I'm, I'm in boot camp, and I'm just a regular boot camp guy. And uh, I got a call from Nat. Uh, we evidently we got, I don't remember the details exactly, but we could get calls. I get a call from Nat, and he tells me, "Hey, we have a chance to be on Hullabaloo. Do you think you can get a pass?" Anyway, I went up to to the the powers that be there, and I got um, uh, they gave me permission. They were really nice. They gave me a three day pass for me to go up and tape Hullabaloo. And the well, besides the experience, I, I just want to share with you one particular experience related to the Coast Guard. Um, so we did the, we did Hullabaloo, and that was awesome to actually be there doing this. Um, but now I'm now back in my reserve duty in Cape May, New Jersey, Coast Guard uh, boot camp, and Hullabaloo is now set to come on. So this was like the next week, you know, it was taped, and everybody is in the dining room waiting for Hullabaloo to come on because, you know, Don is going to be on Hullabaloo. So I still remember waiting for this to come on and praying that they didn't cut us, that it came on, because I would have lost all credibility if we weren't on. Anyway, it came on, and I still remember the feeling of sitting. It was a surreal experience of sitting in the dining room as a boot camp trainee, watching myself as a rock, well, sort of call it new rock star on television. It was a little black and white television. That's all I have. But there I was with Tom and Marty on Hullabaloo playing Red Rubber Ball. And it was just a surreal, awesome experience. Uh, the band went your separate ways. And, and both you and Tom Dawes went into uh, creating commercial jingles and had tremendous levels of success. Um, you wrote uh, the Uncola song for seven. No, that was Tommy. Tommy did. Oh, the Tommy Uncola. did. Okay, uh, but Tom. you did the Swansons, and and maybe my favorite of yours, the Brim Twist. Yes, you remember that. <laughs> <laughs> that you know that was one of those cool experiences. Now, um, the head of music at the at the agency that we did that for that we I'd gotten friendly with him. He was a really great guy. His name was Roy Eaton. Uh, he came to us uh, once. He said, hey, get ready to do a demo. I have something I want to try out. Okay, sure. Come on in. 
Um, uh, and we could do, uh, I had the ability, even before all MIDI, MIDI and computers and all that stuff, I, I could play several instruments. And so I, by myself, could do full band demos, or at least rhythm section anyway. So anyway, he came in, he says, we're going to do a version of The Twist. And uh, it's for Brim Coffee. It's the Brim Twist. Come on, baby, let's do the Brim Twist. How come decaffeinated coffee got great ground flavor like this? That's the Brim Twist. And the real one real kick for me was he brought in, this is going back to doo-wop now. So if any of your folks remember the song, Church Bells May Ring. Mm. Church bells may ring, church bells may ring. It was a 50s doo-wop hit. The lead singer was a fellow named Tony Middleton. And in walks Roy Eaton, the, you know, the, the head of agency at, at Benton and Bowles, which was the agency at the time, with Tony Middleton. He brings in Tony Middleton. He says, Tony's going to sing the lead on this brim twist. And so we, we, you know, we spent the afternoon, basically, I laid down the tracks, Tony uh, sang a great lead, and I still have it, I mean, I, I have it in my computer, Tony, he, he did a great lead, and my partner and I and one other studio singer that we got in, um, we did the ooh, bop, bop, you know, the, the background, ooh, bop, bop, and it went right on the air pretty quick, actually, it was one of those, you know, things where everything worked out, it was very cool. Awesome. Well, Don, so many great stories. I wish we had longer to talk with you today, but it's been a blast catching up with you. I hope we can do it again and get some more stories from you. Well, happy to do it, and it, it, it's great to meet you, Rich, and uh, thank you for having me. That's Don Daneman. Some great stories about the 60s rock and roll. The Circle, Turn Down Day, Red Rubber Ball, and, man, that great memory for details from stuff that happened 50-plus years ago. But then again, I think if you hopped into a limo with Brian Epstein, you, that's the kind of thing that you would remember. Things stick in your memory <laughs> when they're at that level, yes. Yeah. John Lennon giving you the name and the spelling of your group, that would you'd remember that, yes. Yep. Uh, yeah. If it had happened to me, I think, yes, that would be clear as a bell. <laughs> uh, fun stuff there with Don Danimut of The Circle. Our thanks to him. Thanks to Don McLean as well, whose new album, Still Playing Favorites, is out right now anywhere you buy fine music. And thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance.